G'day, Ben Fife of Westwood Leather. Nice to have you on the show. It is my pleasure. Such a sincere pleasure to be here. Thank uh, you. Likewise, Thank you for man. this invitation. What, uh, a, what a sweet deal. I've, I've been following you for years now. So this oh. is a, a long time coming. That's so cool, man. Like, I love yeah. reaching out to, like, like-minded people. And for some reason, the internet seems to push great people like yourself my way so like super stoked man um yeah like so you're like right now you're in your studio it's it's nighttime for you yeah um so i want to know dark earlier yeah i want to know um yeah so this is your studio is it like a shop is it a workshop like what goes on in your studio yeah, so I've got a, you know, a fairly small kind of like 12 by 12 room here, but behind me through the door is like a 16 by 48 foot center corridor to a barn. It's like a big kind of old style barn, but it's kind of, but it's more finished in terms of the floor anyway. Um, wow. So that's more woodworking, drill press, sanders, grinders. That's very much a functional workshop in terms of like getting things done. Uh, but also serves my good purposes for leather work as well, because I have larger tables out there and I can roll out full hides and things of that nature. So that's so helpful to have all that workspace there. You're doing like carpentry back there as well. Yeah. Any, anything that I need to do, which is nice in terms of, so metal work, carpentry, things like that. Yes. Currently building a house, uh, like two miles South of where I'm at here. So that helps in those regards too. table saw, you know, just with the the lumber and things like that, but also nice for finer woodwork if that comes into play and making jigs. Jigs is like this. We'll probably talk about jigs later because there's there's metaphors to jigs that are important. And I'm sure where our conversation will go. But um, but just really the ability to kind of if you have an idea and you need to accomplish something in order to accomplish that idea the shop is you know that uh assistant space mm. really that where you so much is possible um so just any any amount of space in general for creating um is always welcome yeah, yeah. Nice. so this That's... but but it's definitely crowded in in here <laughs> yeah i so see you have a lot of vintage in the background i'm kind of eyeing off yeah. things in the back yeah that got... that flag back there is uh is a sweet one that's a that's an early vintage pickup for me years ago and it's probably like a 19 1944 i think is actually the date on there but it's the alphabet it's a the nautical alphabet that's the w is that can can uh, you describe that for folks who are just listening right now like what are we looking at is that the square in the back yes yeah yeah sorry yeah right right back here so we're we're looking at a, a, a square piece of material with like squares <laughs> inside it it's like got a yes, is red, that in white <laughs> blue, blue squares here and it's fairly large i mean um beautiful the top has a heavy piece of canvas stitched across with a rope that runs through it so this is a flag that you would hang from a mast or uh, some kind of a flagpole on a ship to ex- to express uh 
a message. So this is the W. So typically they would probably assign a purpose to each letter so that they could shorten the, you know, the, the task in order to accomplish what they were trying to say. Um, and there's a, there's a flag for every letter and this one just happens to be a beautiful uh, combination. They're all really cool to be honest, but it's, it's rare. It's rare to find one in a hundred percent cotton. And this has multiple panels that are stitched and it's all stitched together. And so many of the flags, you know, probably past the sixties became nylon and Mm. more printed rather than stitched. So just has a great weight. I mean, from an aesthetic standpoint, sure. But then tactilely too, you know, we can geek out on that kind of thing all day. Yeah, but it's just it, it's just a it's a nice it's one. A really nice piece. Yeah, I want to talk and then about hats vintage. All over the place. Yeah, yeah. Yes. You have you like such a collector and like okay, I need to stop right here and explain to yeah. folks who are listening right now. You have a beautiful um, leatherworking business called Westwood Leather. And you're making yeah. all your pieces artisanally yourself. I love watching your like your making videos of from start to finish. Oh, thank you. All all the pieces because there's really so much thought and care and time that goes mm-hmm. into your pieces, which is what make them works of art. Um, so since we're Appreciate on the that. like on on the vintage subject, like let's talk mm. about what you love collecting why vintage is so important to you and how that mm. inspires the, you know, product development. Right. Yeah. That's such a man. You know, I think if you're, if you're not into vintage, it might be hard to understand how nuanced of a question that is. Um, because I feel like the evolution of vintage hunters as, as people, happens when they're very young and it's inexplicable when you're that age because you don't really know why you treasure a certain thing um because we all treasure things as children i'm sure but but i think being fascinated with anything old well beyond your years old when you're very young is an early sign that you're hooked and it's going to be that way forever. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I think it's as simple as Coke bottles, you know, like, uh, something that you just don't experience, you know, I mean, when, when I was growing up, obviously most beverages were in cans. So just to see the bottle itself and the contours of the bottle and the way it felt and the colors and the tints of the glass, um, these are things that were striking me when I was, you know, probably, 10 years old or earlier, even Mm. there was just a fascination there. And, and I think it was, uh, always looking at something like that was always coupled with, gosh, who bought this? Yeah. And, you know, where did this one, and why was this, you know, how did this feel to drink out of this thing? It must've been interesting. And what did you do with it when you were like, why is it still here? Why is it, you know, why is it not? Like I grew up with glass Coke bottles because I, I grew up in Thailand. So, so we still like, we still use glass Coke bottles, man. And right. it's, it's like amazing. Like it's, it's how consuming should be because you have the, the glass Coke delivery at the shops or at the, at the noodle shops. And then at the end of every day, like the, the person comes and picks them up takes them to the sure. to the coke spot and then they rinse them at like they do yeah they refill and like that 
that happens every day right. but like so in yeah. your you in america you did not grow up with glass soda bottles no no bottles i think went out of uh fashion or whatever you want to call them uh or call it in probably the 70s around who knows maybe mm -hmm. early 80s yeah and um you know, they they came back again in the 90s at some point as a somewhat of a novelty. Mm. Uh, probably, if I recall, it was like around Christmas time. They were like marketing it as kind of like a, because they could use the old Norman Rockwell ads. Again, we're back to vintage. Like there's, there's a hearkening back to this thing. They were appealing to people that way. And, um, but yeah, but, but I had, I had been to Mexico a couple of times through high school and, and. Uh, you know, they were doing the same with the Coke bottles and rinsing them. And it was, I remember it being striking then, but, but I remember in, when I was growing up garage sailing and seeing, you know, from like 1905 to 1920, a completely different bottle, a different colored glass, a different shape. And so, so it was a, it's a, it's a tough example to use because mm -hmm. it is interesting that every, um, other country has a better per perception of that because of, and it appeals to a totally different category of conversation even because yeah. they're reusing, they're recycling that. And it's so much more, there's so much more wisdom in that. So kind of a tough example to use for the, for the, uh, appreciation for vintage, but it definitely, um, was things like that, you know, finding things at garage sales and whatnot. And a lot of it, um, you know, I grew up, my dad was in the military in Vietnam. So a lot of that was vintage military, which I'm sure you can appreciate because of a lot of the inspiration I see you acquiring. Um, so there was definitely a, a fair amount of world war two and I, it, a lot of it was, it's the story to be yeah. honest. I mean, if we're going to just be shorten it down, it's the story. It's, yeah. it's, it's the story behind it and, and what it tells you about a whole time. Um, so there's something about that. And, um, yeah, I mean, if in terms of answering how it influences my work, that's really just it. It's all of the vintage and the photographs and just the, the essence to some degree of so many different times of mm -hmm. different people of different cultures and, uh, challenges that were faced that kind of keeps fueling me in terms of creating and because it's of the same mindset there's the need and necessity same thing i guess to overcome challenges um in these earlier times with less conveniences and that ingenuity and um creativity that i see that comes along with the functionality was always very fascinating to me and I think that that pushes me to work with my hands on any medium at any point um, because of that uh, kind of core human uh, momentum. It's curio yeah, it's like a, a curiosity. It's like a yearning yeah. for for finding the meaning of life. But um, yeah, I totally can relate. Um, like I've, I, I've collected stuff my whole life as well. I can relate um, from a young, young age. I do agree with you that it's something that starts real young and it's this curiosity and this kind of like appreciation for random everyday objects um, that 
yes uh, that are not you know that are not in your context they're, they're like you know they're little time capsules and I always felt like um I don't know if it's the same for you but me like going to high school learning history I felt like you know the school curriculum really scratched the surface I didn't really like learn much about the world's history at school or at university and but that that I feel like history tells us everything about who we are but um I can I feel like I went to school in a very like postmodern um kind of framework and that meant that you know a lot of a lot of old traditional values of learning things properly um really going into depth was kind of thrown out the window and we were supposed to kind of build who we are as people from nothing with no tools to do that with so my curiosity and like love for history and collecting stuff really has to do with figuring out who the hell I am and what my purpose is well said. yeah well said. so true yeah I, I that's can great totally I see where you're coming from and I totally relate mm-hmm. um I also think that that vintage collecting vintage pieces as a designer and as someone you know who who can cut patterns I think vintage mm-hmm. teaches me a lot about making patterns really good patterns but it teaches yes, me about yeah it teaches it almost is the reverse way that you would learn pattern making at school formally at school because you're going from a made piece and you're deconstructing it to figure out why it looks this way and like what the geometry yeah. um of mm-hmm. that piece is so like i want to go to yeah do, like do you agree with that and like 100% 100 percent it's it's but it's even more interesting because you don't always want to take that vintage piece apart oh yeah you're disassembling it mentally and trying to figure out tolerances and everything else without harming the original oh yeah and there's a whole new level of having to work around all that mentally yeah for sure do you make so you obviously make your own patterns and your you uh, your designs are completely your brain juice pure brain juice brain juice um like are you self-taught like what how did this all come come together making beautiful leather pieces Mm. um yes yeah good question it's you know such an evolution in that regard too i think i always worked with my hands my whole life in some form or fashion art was something i grew up doing throughout school but we all you know at the same time art was in school it was always a a class and always should be a class let's keep it that way um so there was there was always that and to be honest i was actually pulled out of class in the second grade me and a buddy this is we tell we talk about this between each other a lot to uh while during reading hour or whatever it was the teacher would pull us out of class and let us draw because they saw a talent there and they like, you know, they wanted to nurture that, which I completely respect. How cool for a yeah, teacher to do so that at that progressive. age. So, I mean, the fact that as a second grader, I remember that and my buddy does. And we talk about that is, is impactful. So that was very cool. Teachers. Awesome. Do yeah. that. Um, so, so it was, you know, at some point 
in some form or fashion, I think I was, I'm always going to be destined to be working with my hands. And, uh, and I was, uh, and I was very interested in, um, vintage as well, but also I was camping a lot growing up and, and outdoors a lot. And really along with appreciation for vintage, the function of it was really something that like grabbed at me because the function of a lot of these old things that we find is so much better. The -hmm. fact that they're even still around is a testament right there, but they just are designed in a way that's so brilliant. And it, and it speaks to the fact that it was being made by someone who understood the, you know, the materials more than people perhaps do now because the Mm -hmm. connection was more, from life, you know, and experience, perhaps, I don't know, but, um, I feel like the stakes were higher because like, you know, from raw material to finished product, so much time goes into that. And like, people didn't just, Mm -hmm. just throw things away the way that we do now. So higher stakes. Yeah. And the stakes, yeah. And the stakes were higher on the, on the user end too. Like that item had to function better because life depended on it you know what i mean whether it was physical safety or just acquiring food the the amount of physical labor people did was different you know so there's a Mm -hmm. there's a functionality to the durability of it and and the way that it moves that speaks a lot so i think that those things always had my attention to some form or fashion which drew me to companies like filson and um and, and and at a key time in like 2008 I was already in, I'd been into it since like 2003, 2002. I was working in the mountains in California and, um, I grew up with vintage military stuff camping. So I was already accustomed to those things, but technical gear was hot. It's always hot, you know, eighties, nineties, two thousands, Gore-Tex, et cetera. But I was working in the mountains and none of those things were performing the way they should have compared to like, say my vintage Swedish military wool pants. They were just so faithful. So I began looking more for like wool, like who's making wool now? Who's doing this? Where can I find this? And I discovered Filson in Seattle and I could not believe it. I grew up in Washington state. I could not believe that I did not know about a mm-hmm. company that had been around since the late 1800s making product in house in Seattle. I just was blown away. And their core line at that point in time was very simple and incredibly pure and full of Mackinac wool. And um, I remember I was telling myself then, I was just like, I want to work for this company. And uh, and I was very, in, you know, I was very much into axes and quality knives and things that worked in the woods because those were places that I existed and I felt at home. So I was buying, you know, traditional wood tools and things like that and and paying attention to those things and that brought me in a roundabout way back to seattle i was doing many different jobs and um and when i was in seattle i was like well in my off time i would love to work at filson so Mm. long story short and and filson's even still down down the road a ways i ended up helping to open a kind of a boutique men's uh retail experience in Seattle called the field house. And it was focused really on, it was 2008 and it was very much heritage goods. So we had LVC when they first started back up again and we carried double RL and we carried, um, PF flyers and Fjallraven and, uh, it just kept going. The list goes on and we also carried farm fresh eggs and milk and 
Sierra uh, Trudon candles, and it was just a, and Pendleton, you know, Filson, all these different experiences and and companies with heritage. And this was my first exposure to kind of this resurgence of heritage that was taking place on the backs of these just giants, these icons of yeah. heritage that had been in business for real and, and, you know, for a century. And then these new companies that were popping up that were emulating and taking inspiration from this idea of how can we be more involved in the, in the creative process yeah. and create something wonderful that way. So working at that shop was my first exposure to company like Billy Kirk and I'll give them a shout out because they really were early on and their, their, their creative process and design and, and who they work with is still so beautiful. Mm. So I was working at the shop, I was managing and I was buying for them and I had a lot of free time because it was very much a unique shop in Seattle. So you would get very intentional buyers that would come through and while the records were spinning, you know, I'd be behind the counter and I'd be playing around with elements. And, and so I started playing with leather because it made sense. And I saw these wallets or belts and I was like, well, I want to try that. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like I like the design, but maybe I want to do something a little different or maybe this or that. So that was a conversational piece when customers would come in because I would be behind the counter and they'd want to know what was going on because most of the that customer base is very inquisitive. Mm -hmm. um, so, so that became something that, you know, I just kept working towards and, and playing with and stuff was so simple then it was just ridiculous i was buying belts at like you know a, a goodwill kind of a shop and just carving those down and turning them into you know watch bands and things like nice. that so it was just very simple very simple stuff you gotta start somewhere but, uh, gotta start somewhere you know hand stitching with thread from joann's and needles you just don't know anything about the craft yeah. you're just figuring it out you're just making it work and that's that's in some ways kind of the most wonderful part of the whole journey because Absolutely. it's so full of curiosity, like you mentioned, and you know nothing. So you're as humble as can be and you're just going after it because you want to. That's and that's, that's really where it began. And so that's kind of a long, real Cliff Notes version of yeah. uh, well, some of the steps that took to get there. I feel like 2008 was like the most pivotal pivotal time for heritage coming back because of the global financial crisis. People were like, yeah. "Oh shit, so you know, true. we're destroying the planet and our own livelihoods by, you know, by huge corporation and just mass consumption on such a rampant level." Um so that's when that right. that was that beautiful like birthplace or rebirth place for so many great brands like Filson, Eddie Bauer is another one. Brilliant. Um, yeah, you totally. Know, Nigel Caborn had like a huge, huge like boom in 2008 as well. Um, yeah, no so, doubt. You know, it's like, unbelievable. Yeah, it was definitely a incredible year and it, it continued like that. That's what's beautiful is that, you know, it, it inspired a lot of new young people who yeah. who weren't necessarily yeah. familiar with that kind of um, universe. Yeah. Um, I'm hoping that that is the case, but even more so right now in the, the COVID apocalypse, I think people right. are really appreciating. They're just kind of, they had a, a minute to kind of stop and yeah, like figure totally. out, you know, what's important what do I want to mm. put my money towards? What are my mm -hmm. core values? What, yeah, what gives me meaning in my life? 
I'm hoping so. But um, I agree. I agree. Yeah. That that is a good hope to have, and it, and and these are the circumstances that seem to spur that on. I mean, they kind of spur things in two directions. Yeah. So absolutely. You, you're going to always have a little pendulum, but totally. they definitely, but they definitely push and have been pushing, especially you know people of our generation and time, um, towards more uh, intentional mm-hmm. um, self awareness as well as, and and that translates into their their um, you know, how they approach the commercial and market, you know, the marketplace. Yeah. yeah. I want to, I want to ask you really in depth, um, about leatherworking because I think it's something, Fire. I think it's fascinating. I do work with beautiful, like artisans who make leather products for women's wear, but I've never myself like gone and, and made, you know, anything myself with my own hands like can you let's start talking about you know the geometry the you know the mechanics and engineering the integrity of materials and and like let's start from the beginning with with like hides let's talk about Mm. okay where you're sourcing your leather what you love about what makes a beautiful hide to you and why mm. let's start from there okay okay well that's something that is a very interesting part of the journey for probably any artist with their canvas um but leather is so vast and mm. along with the boom in 2008 you know over that course of the last 12 years there's been a, a very much a resurgence in leather work i mean it's pretty crazy so that surge and that resurgence has also fueled all these tanneries, which is like the best part of all of Yeah. And I think that, um, the journey to discover what's out there has also changed immensely because of how much our worldwide web has changed in the last 12 years. That's is, you know, love or hate it in terms of my relationship with technology. That is a gift that serves us in terms of sourcing uh, materials and such um, and connecting with people mm. like this. Yeah. So great. So so leather for me, I think I really only worked with the bridle at first and it was interesting because most of what I had was like seven to nine ounce leather, which is about as thick as maybe two nickels stacked on top That's of each heavy. other for reference to anyone. And yeah, very heavy. So stiff, you know, often used for belts and straps and things like that. So everything I was making was influenced by the design or I should say every design and every pattern I was making was very much influenced by what the leather could do. Mm. It was was chunky. I know I had to think in three dimensions, but I also was like having to think about how the structure would work, how it's stitched together. Everything had to take that into consideration. So just to talk about hides in realm of the design element outside of just which ones I like and where I get them so much of your design, so much of your craft is determined by your materials. Yes. Um, Oh yeah. It's such an, it's It's so interesting. So when you don't know even what's out there and all you have is the one thing you, it's cool because there's a challenge there and it forces you to like, figure it out and that's a it's a great way to learn um but it's but it's very much uh you know you realize how one-dimensional your 
your craft has been once you discover the next thing, which is funny because it's just the next thing. It's yeah. just one next thing yeah. until you find the next one thing. So, so at first it was bridal and then I, uh, and I was traveling around a lot when I first started working with leather. So I was actually just carrying some leather along with all the rest of my luggage in case I had, um, you know, some interest to make something or if I had a need to fill, which is really a big part of the, the whole process as well. Um, so I never really branched into anything thinner until I stopped moving around. And then I started playing with like four to five ounce leather or stuff like that, which is more like the thickness of a neck, uh, of a, of a quarter. So much more flexible, good for different kind of goods altogether. Um, so that was cool. And I think, uh, you know, to, to, to jump back and kind of play off something that's happening currently in my world, I found there was a leather in 2000 and like 10 that I, that I, my buddy had purchased a belt and it was made from this leather. It was the most insane thing. I can't even explain what it, what it was just the smell. It was like, I mean, so everything else I described in thickness doubled the thickest. I mean, it was like so thick. It was crazy and it was something different. It was just something different. So that was my first experience with a leather where I was like, there's mm -hmm. other things out here in the world. I don't even know about, I don't know how to find them. If it was a food, like, if that piece of leather was food, how would you describe it? It was like the top steak. It was like the thickest, best steak you're going to get, you know, aged and it was aged in oh. like a, know whatever the perfect way it should be prepared right salted age everything just right so that was the grail that was like the grail leather for me at that point because of because of my background too i need to clarify that because it's independent it's not just mm. the leather itself it's the fact that most of what i did i camping outdoors military vintage like all these things this like very functional durable stuff mm. this leather like the icon of those categories so that became in the back of my mind for the next like 10 years, kind of the albatross of like, I'm never going to find this stuff. I don't even know what to look for. How do you find this? But, but it was also, but you know, but it was my first exposure to there is so many things out here. What do I got? What's going on? And as an, as uh, if you're from the States and if you got into this stuff in 2008 and if you've been in the business at all, you know, that Horween out of Chicago became like had a huge resurgence huge i mean and they were really uh leading the pack in terms of leather production and leather demand and still are in many ways because of the chrome xl that they produce um so that's typically i think what you know for the past decade that has been like the first leather that people have pursued to discover leather craft mm -hmm. they've seen they've worked with something else scraps or whatever and then they, um, they're like, I got to try Horween Chrome XL. So Chrome XL is a very wonderful leather. S talk about a good smell. Talk about a good hand feel. Talk about a good flesh side. And there's so many things, folks, to talk, to, to talk about here because yeah. leather comes in so many different finishes, not only on the surface that you typically see when you buy a product, but also the on flesh the flesh side. side, which is the reverse side. Mm. Yeah. Um. Uh, so Horween is good on both of those sides in such a unique way and in a very wonderful leather. But next point being that when you work with Horween, 
Chrome Excel specifically, because that's what you, you know, have seen in a pair of boots or whatnot, you find out very quickly that also it performs specifically towards certain tasks better than others. Um, and that's, I think, a huge moment of revelation as a leather crafter mm-hmm. where you, and, and any artisan, I'm sure, where you realize that it doesn't matter how much you love a certain thing or how special it is, it's not going to be the best thing for every job. Yeah. And you need to find out what the best thing is for every job, for how you design and for what you want to make and what you want your end product to be. And at that point, your search really starts. Yeah. So because you've, you've had just a couple of breadcrumbs up to that point, and then you find out, like, I need to be at the helm here. I need to be in control of, of what this is. And you start to think about what you want your end product to be even more because you've made a few things and you've seen what they aren't when they're done as much as what they are. And you start to say, okay, I don't want it like that. I got to do something different. So then your, then your hunt for leather really begins and, and your understanding of weights starts to really kick in, especially as you start to acquire new tools and the tools perform different tasks and everything, you know, reacts a certain way. So your education of the material really begins to evolve. Um, and that's when I think you really start to get sucked in. If you haven't turned away at that point, you're starting, you know what I mean? Yeah. Like your feet are in and you're yeah. going and you're, 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 you're along now you're in the current full, full stream. Yeah. So, so, so that's where it begins. And, um, you know, and to jump forward, uh, hopefully, I mean, to be honest, I, I have some talks with some other leather workers and other crafts folk about this. There's a, something about putting in your time and, and going through the motions and, and kind of earning it. That's so special to, I think the people that have done that. Yeah. So, so when you jump ahead too quick, sometimes it's kind of a, a cringe. So that's my caveat to the next statement, because jumping ahead many years, when you first get your hands on the very first piece of shell cordovan that you've decided to spend $300 on for a piece this big. Mm-hmm. For, I mean, that's crazy. Um, then you've reached a whole new level of holy shit. Are you ready for that? Yeah. Are you ready Totally. That? And, and where every cut is worth money and you have no room for error. Yeah. Um, these, these are moments of, of beautiful appreciation to another level yeah. of the material and what it took to make it and the people behind it. So with every step forward you take in your craft, you also take a step into the world of the people who are preparing what you get. Yeah. And I think that is a, a wonderful moment of yeah. revelation as well that yeah. creates a respect across the field. Yeah. I think every um, designer or every um, craftsperson has, the ultimate respect for the producers of their their base materials um mm. and yeah and it it does take that 10 at least 10,000 hours to you know to to experience the incredibly diverse universe of like materials and the different functions and uses and aging process of those materials and what is the yeah. best for for that you know that project that you're working on like mm-hmm. when when you talk about leather it i can completely draw parallels with sourcing fabrics you know um mm-hmm. having a relationship with the people who 
weave or knit your fabrics or that that factory that do so um their integrity um and also that responsibility that carries through from raw material to end product of how how much integrity does my product have um because of all the parts that yeah. you know that make it an, a, a great piece um yeah what, what interests me a lot uh, watching your videos on how you make your pieces is all these small, tiny decisions like not punching, um, sorry, like I'm not a leather worker, so I don't know the exact terms, but not punching um, holes in like certain spots of, you know, of say, for example, like a, a, a spot that would, you would use to buckle a bag closed and not punching holes in a certain spot because the more you use that, the more likely it's going to, you know, snap and, and break off mm-hmm. eventually. And I've learned that so many times yeah. from buying so many vintage bags. Like any vintage right. bag with leather on it, it's bound to break on you because it's so old, especially yeah. at the so true. Yeah, where where it's been used like, you know, on on the buckle mm-hmm. so much. You know, so yeah. small minute decisions that don't affect mm-hmm. right now but affect the future. I can see mm-hmm. you you making them in your whole process, which is really, oh, really that's cool. so good. And that's what makes I appreciate it hearing that. Yeah, really yeah, I appreciate hearing that. Yeah, that for me is one of the reasons I started doing the videos. Um, I, I like the, the challenge of it. I like audiovisual in general as a medium. But uh, I think I felt having fielded so many questions from people in real time that people just would maybe appreciate and, and I would also appreciate uh, kind of a window into what it takes to build a certain thing. Um and specifically choosing to to feature items I had never made, so it was a process for for everyone involved, and and it felt very genuine in that way, um, because of me actually being in the position to make those decisions that you're speaking of. So I thought that that might be a a, a helpful um, educational video as well as just kind of a, an interesting experience for entertainment perhaps or mm. if anyone else was also getting into the craft you know a way to maybe uh, relate or um or whatnot so so nice for me to hear that because some t- i also know that i'm just a little crazy in my videos sometimes yeah. because you we all crazy, you work man. by yourself we're all crazy <laughs> you <work> by yourself. <laughs> i was so saying I'm just to you before, like talking to myself yeah I was saying to you before before the podcast, like anyone who's got some creative juju in their in their brain, we all crazy, we all little bit crazy or much so. So true. Don't tell anybody. Um, Yeah. yeah, So it's very much it. It's uh, the design process is funny, and I just posted something about this the other day. Is I often after finishing a custom item in particular, we'll get a question from people frequently um you know how long did it take you to make that and my little diatribe or whatever on instagram was basically like that's such a tough question for me to answer because with a project that i've never made there's no way for me to measure my time in in labor because of how many hours i sent i I sit by myself in quiet 
in some form of darkness, you know, basically with like, just, I'm like wandering through like a, a, a CAD program in my brain trying to figure out like, if I do this, what happens to, to this next thing? If I do this, how is this flap going to function? If, if I, what will this be interfering with? Will this, and you're, you're troubleshooting anything you can run into, particularly with leather, because there's no second try mm. because leather, you can't backstitch and go again. It's done. It's already done. It, you can't repair that. You know what I mean? There's no, and I, and, and with customs, I don't have the time, money, materials to do a second. There's no, the prototype is the finished product. So I have to think about all these things beforehand. Um, and, 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 and then, and then it's like a leap of faith when you, yeah. you know what I mean? Go forward. You're kind of like, and you're trying to reexamine throughout the process, but you definitely want to try to get everything as close to exact before you even start, because there's really not room for adjustments later, except for in certain categories because you know, clearances and distance and measurements don't change. So I really, I can't measure the hours in to that kind of thing. I'll be mm-hmm. driving, I'll be about to sleep and I got to like do some work and I just have to sit there and think about things for a while and, and try to settle on something and then draw it up the next day. And so, so there's a huge element to that. And then there's, like I, the there's so many moments of grace that feels like I don't even know where it comes from. Where I'll be the the day I'm supposed to do something, I'll think something different, and like ah, I gotta change that. I gotta do this, and it, and if and I think back on it, and it's like if I would have done it a different way, it wouldn't have worked out. Because once you're putting it together, you see how it works, and you're just like, oh my gosh, this is amazing. So there's these like moments of mercy that exist that don't feel like they can fall into a category of time. Mm-hmm anything on this earth in a way it's like some intuitive some gift and you're and and you're just so grateful because of the fact that it saved your ass you know what i mean yeah so it's like there's these so so i can't that question is so tough for me because it the person who's asking it has no understanding of what what i'm doing and i can't respond in a way that's rude and i don't and i'm not even thinking in a way that's rude because I know that they, their work is the same way mm-hmm. for me. I can't fully understand what time they've put in. So I, I try to answer in a, in a way that makes sense, including some of the things I just said, and then yeah. just kind of carry on. And, and, yeah. and, and maybe enjoy the fact that there's a mystery to it. That They're like, what the hell did he say? You know what I mean? It's just yeah. like, that's the way it is. Um, but it it's, it's definitely... a mystery in life, for sure. That's what keeps yeah. the magic happening. I feel like um, I think that's what I, I like about your videos, and I think it's like so, so important now to have more transparency in the different. Like, okay, in in the fashion world, there are so these the spectrum of fashion businesses are so is so wide. You know, you have tiny small mm-hmm. makers all you know right up to huge corporations making you know fast fashion for example and you know i feel feel like for the regular consumer that's not so apparent that there is such a an incredibly diverse um diverse kind of spectrum and i think i see that people they do really want to know more about how their products being made. They are starting to ask the right question, but we're still like in the stone age of, of the understanding of how different things are made and how much time, you know, how different businesses operate um, and how much time and 
and work goes into that that piece for example for your pieces um you know so people are asking this they're starting to ask questions like where is this made um you know is this sustainable i hate that question as well because that is such an incredibly you know deep conversation Mm. you know that Mm. takes a very long time people are starting to ask this but there is still such a basic understanding of how things work behind the scenes in in mm-hmm. you know this industry um but you know at, like there is hope because i think this happened in the food industry in like the early 2000s you know people started right. wanting to know where their food was coming from how who's producing their food how it's you know how it's getting to them blah 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 so i think mm. you know i feel like that's happening with with like you know consumable goods as well um yeah, but we're still agreed. in the early days super early days yeah 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 i think that that's that's very much true i noticed the same that food and wine and beer alcohol seem to be kind of the the forerunners of a lot of the appreciation for how things were made mm-hmm. where they were coming from the story behind them and and consumable goods uh seem to follow suit um and I think it's exciting because I think that, you know, what drew me to vintage in a lot of, in a lot of ways was how things were made. And, and what I appreciated about um, history and so much of history is that not only how things were made, but that most people could make them. Mm. Like they could figure out a way to do their, you know, to do what they yeah. needed to do. So that, that kind of, you know, um, follow through in response to necessity is, was just like so awesome to me. I had so much respect for that. Yeah. And, uh, and I still do. And so I think that there's, um, I think that there's a thirst for that because we're, we're so much, we get further and further from that existence as a, as a culture, as a world culture. And so many cultures are actually much closer to that than, than obviously the United States culture. There's still so many cultures that are much more connected to the land and the process. And, and really, I think that those are the, those are the people we need to be looking to as a world right now as a way to reset because that is where we need to be centered. That is where our minds need to be centered. Yeah. We're so, we're so human centric. We're so egocentric. Uh, and I think that's just in general across the board, the temptation um, yeah. comes with comfort that that can happen. So I think that there's the, the, any, that anybody and that there would be a trend of curiosity into how things are made and wanting to make them yourself, which is also amazing that we see a lot of now is so important and yeah. I, and I'm excited about it. And that's where I really enjoy being in this field. Currently, I just feel like I'm part of a renaissance a little bit and, yeah. and I enjoy throwing my hat in the ring and, and just being here, to be honest. Yeah. Super awesome. Like I do feel like city, city culture has made us useless human beings. It's, it's a culture yeah. of convenience and I, I am shocked well, it's not shocking really because it's so normal now, but people, no, most people can't cook. They can't cook right. to feed themselves if they need to. You know, it's something that's mm. such a, you know, basic thing to me is like, you know, being able to grow your own food, right. cook and, you know, make make things that you need, you know, clothes right. or, or, well, and you're, or you're, carpentry. You're big on cooking too, right? I mean, yeah, you're I love like, cooking. you're... Yeah, I've seen yeah. some of your videos like you're you're not just you're not just an essentials cook you're you do good you do good food and I've traditional had, cultural I've food. Like, 
I'm like a cat with nine lives. I at one point in my life, I I went to a technical college and I was I almost well I finished a course to you know three year course to be a chef. I did my work placement, worked in some kitchens, and then I was like, oh, I'm gonna go to art school now. So yeah, like I still love wow. cooking. Um, yeah, I learned yeah. like French cookery, you know, that which has wow. such a beautiful history and um so yeah, many methods of cooking bit. yeah just a little bit um but yeah i still <laughs> you know that's something that you know i i'm interested in so many things i want to pursue so many yeah. things but you can still pursue all these things as your passion you don't have to like you, you like life is long we can do a lot of stuff and and yep. we should continue to develop and grow and learn and and like hone our skills and yeah but yeah right. back to being useless people yeah we i think um <laughs> the zombie apocalypse has kind of shown us how useless as a society we kind of are because yeah. we've been so plugged in man so right. plugged in we and we and we still are it's it's tough yeah. i think that there's we need to really pursue balance a lot more because um you know i i've pride myself on being able to do the, the simple things like start a fire you know what i mean and and there's a lot of people that can't do that and that's really frightening because that is the tool that is yeah. the tool i mean but but it's just but even as even myself thinking about how much i'm on devices and how much i'm not in necessity and this is actually something i thought of the other day when we were going to do the podcast and it's funny that it kind of came up but it's just like I heard at one point in the last couple of years that people's eyesight was failing earlier and they had determined that it was because that they, they didn't see there wasn't enough change in distance in their day-to-day -day activity. So in the past where you would be communicating with what's around you and then looking to a horizon line, that's not happening now. Yeah. So we have less exercise of our actual eyes. That kind of thing freaked me out and made yeah, me depressed man. and sad. Because it's just be uh, sad. the horizon, the horizon. What's better? What's better than that? Um, yeah. And that's why it made me sad because it was just like we are missing. We're missing out if mm -hmm. we are not looking up, and we we have to we have to remember that as we try to progress. Because progress, I think, has been defined as just forward motion, and that's kind of where the essence of westward that I have packaged it with in my mind and and soul is that it's no progress is not just forward motion like it needs to be back and forward it needs to be mm. we need to be pulling from what what's happened in the past in terms of what you know what atrocities and mistakes have been made and how we can rectify and learn from those and also what was being done well that we can learn from and try to bring back instead of just thinking that we have the answer and the answer is ahead of us yeah. uh, sometimes the answers are, i mean it's not, it's obviously not an original idea but it's definitely often and more often the case now than ever it seems behind us like the answers yeah. are something that's already happened and we can we can take from that and improve upon it and and uh you know yeah. pay homage to it and all those things so yeah my head's there a lot that um that i feel i can relate to this mental battle that you i see you often have between many you know it's almost like you exist on a line between, um, you know, 
modernity and and history and it's almost like a, a fine line between order and chaos and you're always having oh, yeah. this I can see this really strong mental battle that you have you know do I show my work <laughs> to the public do I keep it for this beautiful intimate um, setting do I like do I make something to a certain way or do I um, how do I how do I reconfigure how this how this item that I'm making um, to work the best way possible there's always that battle that you're having and I think that's a battle that many um, creatives are always having within themselves that seems um, yeah. so that's it I think what you were just talking about is a beautiful segue into what is art, man? <laughs> what is art? Oh, geez. This is an insane question. What is um, art to you? I've been, I've been thinking even more about this this year than, than probably any year prior because of the world circumstances that we are in, and particularly in the United States, how much more is even seeming to bubble up and... Um, on so many levels really so and so much of throughout history people that i respect and and um honestly people that everybody respects and to, on some levels as well i talk about art in terms of its relationship to civilization so i actually wrote a quick list nice. to this question that's somewhat of a poem that feels like an appropriate response to Art is, as you asked me this this morning, I thought about it throughout the day, and uh, here we go. It's called Art Is. Take art it away. is essential. Yeah. Art is essential. Art is fluid. Art is transcendent. Art is a portal. Art is a stethoscope time machine. Art is informative. Art is enlightening. Art is a salve. Art is planning, patience, and practice. Art is freedom, rebellion, and protest. Art is magnetic north. Art is boundless. Art is individual and community. Art is ancestral. Art is heaven and earth, holy and grounding. Art is firmament. Art is and will be forever. Art will outlast us all. Yeah, that's that's what art is to me. It's a lot of those things and probably a lot more, but those are some things that were running through my mind this morning. I just need like a, a minute to like just kind of wow that was beautiful man that yeah that is definitely what art is and mm -hmm. I think for me I think art is definitely that battleground I think art is not only holy but it can mm -hmm. be the devil too yeah. That is It's like a paradox. Art. Art. Yeah. Yeah. I think and as, art, I was, as I was thinking about 
yeah, it's today. I was thinking about it. It's almost everything I thought of was a paradox. It was like it was, it was the balance. Art was the balance. That's how it felt. It's just like the, mm. it's like the bridge between two things, or all things. I don't I even think, know. I think it's a bridge into somebody else's universe. I think it's a mm-hmm. bridge to see perspective through somebody else's eyes, and I think. Right. A lot of artists and creative people who make art, um, they have a special perspective on the world that regular people need to be reminded of often mm. because, mm-hmm. you know, you think about the Impressionists um, who painted, you know, outdoor scenery really fast. You, you know, it just it's, it's reminding of us about looking out to the horizon yeah and sometimes we forget that you know and Mm -hmm. art yeah yeah I, i remember i mean this year like one of the striking artists that's really rung in my ears a lot is james baldwin and he speaks a lot about this dilemma that we're speaking of of self discovery as an artist of of purpose of calling and, and not knowing how to use it and feeling like society doesn't always want it. And especially if you like are someone like Baldwin who has so much to say and so poignantly about stuff uh, in, in our culture that is just so, you know, important to, to bring forth and put on the table and, and to, to have that power as an individual to have that calling comes with such an amazing weight you know and i'm not so, so with an individual like that as they speak about it you can really feel the internal struggle and i and i and i think that's so beautiful um to listen to someone who is at his level speak about art in that way as knowing what it will cost him but knowing that he can be nothing but that that there was nothing else he can be that that's his he was created to be that that's he will not be content in any other way other than through that struggle and i think that that's just like you know that that's, that's really resonated with me a lot this yeah. year i i think um i i can also relate to that like i think there's nothing more powerful than knowing yourself and knowing mm. and 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 that that I hate to use this word journey, but I'll use it anyway. Journey to knowing yourself. Um, yeah. And, you know, maybe that's what life's all about. Who knows? Yeah. Maybe it's about yeah. nothing. That yeah. could be too. It, it, such an artist. These are such <laughs> artist questions. These are such artist questions. I think that's where art is so important and really, you know, to like just pull some of the things out that I put on here to, to not just be so obscure, like, Art is magnetic north. Like, I feel like the resonating theme that I noticed throughout history with individuals that speak about art, like Plato, for instance, if we're going to go way back, is the essential nature that art plays in society. This, this kind of litmus test of where are we and is it okay and what should we be doing? And, you know, if it's, if it's too calm, art shakes it up. If it's too out of control, art levels it out. It's like this, let's, you know, let's examine 
and and you see this throughout history it's this beautiful um portal to these moments of like you can see art trying to define something or acting as a guise for something or helping to escape from something Mm. you know there's all these different elements to which it acts as a vehicle to move the the time and the culture from point to point and often as we go through archaeology it's the only thing left over it's almost amazing that it's like whether it's writing and text or paintings or sculpture or even architecture Architecture, what else do we really know what else do we really know hieroglyphs it's all like it's all you know what i mean things that the stones and the inca like yeah it's just super right angles we're just yeah we're just we're awestruck by the simplicity um and complexity of these things that we cannot even accomplish again with all our technology so there's there's so much mystery in it and intrigue and yet from culture to culture and civilization across the world there's this continuity of art that exists in each culture and as I visited the Met, I think the first time in New York, there's so, I mean, don't even, mm-hmm. where, where do we start here? Yeah. But, but one of the things that really sticks out to me is going through like the Egyptian, um, really, there's more than, actually, the more than one exhibit has this. But you notice in some of the glass cases, figurines that were carved that were found in a regular house by a regular individual. Nobody special, no artist behind them. And, you know, or, or in Spokane territory where I'm at, the, the tribes that lived in this territory, woven grass baskets, immaculate, like tight enough to carry water. But are they just like that? No, there's decorative elements as well. There's, there's a change in, in textile to create a pattern. And what, why, why, why carve a figurine? fun why put a pattern on something that's functional every culture doesn't just create for necessity they create with an intentional purpose whether it's for beauty or for for praise or for ceremony there's these elements that that leave us with questions yeah but but regardless think, of the questions i think or that the, boils the i sorry i just wanted to just have a quick point on that um, why you know like you're asking why there why make a a watertight basket that is purely function and why give it you know that decorative detail but doesn't that boil mm-hmm. down to the the values the core values of that culture you know yeah that I think so. is valuable I think that's yeah that's what yeah. is so fascinating to me is that it's it's like you see it exist across the board that no one just created without there's another level of there's a soul there's a soul in it yeah. there's a re, there's a while i'm doing this i might as well do it like this i might as well make it mine put my mark on it make yeah. it special make it a gift so i think that that is that's art that the, the fact that it is at the at the root of all things we don't just do as a humanity we try to do in a way that is has a purpose or whatever the purpose is beauty or ceremony or you know or um or even self-expression alone it there's this element that is a common thread throughout the beginning of time as far as i can as far as i can gather i mean why you know telling stories it's really telling stories mm-hmm. it's a story somewhere whether it's Save for now but yourself. the beautiful art 
tends to tell the story way later, way much, you know, much mm-hmm. later in the, in the future. So it's, I'm always fascinated by that. Yeah. That's well, Ben, that was a fucking beautiful way to end this podcast. Thank you. <laughs> that We're was done. awesome. All right. Thank you so much for, for being on the show. For folks who want to check out your art, how can they do yeah. that? Well, honestly, uh, the social media, Instagram, is probably the easiest way to keep up with what I'm most currently working on and doing. I don't have a lot of time outside of um, that and creating to update the website. So Westwood Leather um, account on Instagram is a good place to find me. Awesome. This is such a pleasure. Thank you so much. We need to do it again. This was, I felt like we only just, you know, scratch the surface of this no we're kindred lauren we're kindred i can tell filling in blanks we're we're, we understand each other on many levels so this was real this was real special i appreciate the invitation well i appreciate you man bye everybody Uh